Welcome to episode 74 of the GTO on 5G. It's the latest inside scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 15 minutes, and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Will Townsend, and joining me again this week is fellow analyst Anshul Sag. Let's get started with my first topic. I want to talk about T-Mobile. So T-Mobile announced its 3Q earnings this week, and I dug into that release. I don't really want to talk about the financials, but I, I do want to talk about its fixed wireless access business. So this was launched several months ago, and what Mike Sievert, the CEO, reported was that T-Mobile is on track to serve almost half a million subscribers by the end of the year, and they expect by 2025 to serve seven to eight million. Not surprising to me with respect to the profile of customer, it's primarily rural, and also folks that are uh, frustrated with their cable, their broadband cable service. So, and I've spoken to Fixed Wireless Access and it's you know, the opportunity for it to be an element in helping to bridge the digital divide. Now, the big question is, how is T-Mobile doing overall in building out its uh, enterprise services portfolio? I've spoken to this in the past. Everyone knows, you know, I believe on the planet that you know, T-Mobile was historically you know, very consumer focused, very disruptive there. With Sprint, that brings some business acumen. I've spoken to that as well. But I think fixed wireless access, from my perspective, is their, their crawl before their walk and run. And I do expect that they will lean into you know, the resources that Sprint has brought um, with the acquisition. Um, I'd like to see it happen a little bit sooner. Sprint had invested quite heavily in its Curiosity IoT um, sort of solution in a box. And um, I'd, I'd like to see some movement there. And, and also, you know, solutions that will scale up from the, the, the mid-market into the larger, you know, enterprise space to compete with the likes of AT&T and um, Verizon. So, you know, from my perspective, this is a great start. Um, you know, I believe, you know, the goodness with FWA, again, is, is helping to bridge that, that you know, di that rural digital divide. But I'd like to see more but would love to get your perspective. Yeah, so as you can see, I was playing around. This is actually their 5G fixed wireless gateway. Mm -hmm. um, I've been messing with it here uh, in San Diego, but um, the issue is, is that um, it's, I, I think that the, the network itself is not quite where it needs to be yet for, for fixed wireless to necessarily be um, all things to everybody. Mm -hmm. um, I think that it does have potential to solve people's problems. Um, I've seen people tweet about how they kicked Spectrum to the curb and, you know, they live in a place where they can get three to 400 megabits per second on T-Mobile's mid-band network. Mm -hmm. So I think there's definitely some improvements there. And I think there are also people who could benefit from just the low band alone because sure. um, there are people who live in places where they still have ADSL, Mm -hmm. And that's the best that they can get. Um, and that's, you know, capping out for them in, at 10 to 20 megabits. So I still think there's a lot of opportunities, but I think to some people's points, you know, there needs to be better equipment out there right now. Only there's a, one Nokia device, which is what I had in hand over there. Right. Um, and, the, you know, there was a new announcement that just came out that Netgear now has a mesh 5G device with an external antenna uh, plug-in, which I think is a big deal because that's, I think that's a big opportunity for people to have better signal um, and to really have a, a true fixed wireless 
um, deployment. I think these devices are a way for people to get relief quickly um, and for T-Mobile to deploy quickly because they're very easy to deploy. Yeah. Um, but I think long-term you're gonna want people to have um, slightly more robust antennas and more um, fixed wireless, fixed wireless solutions. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, a couple of additional points before we, we move to your first topic. Uh, Mike Sievert spoke to the fact that the claim was that T-Mobile actually grew its FWA footprint at a greater percentage than Verizon. Verizon's been at it a heck of a lot longer. Um, so I, I, I found that was quite interesting. And the other point that he made was that with, with the scale up, you know, and 500,000 subscribers given the launch, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a pretty, you know, awesome achievement from my perspective. But at the same time, he said that, you know, the network capacity is keeping up with, with the growth uh, with their FWA business. But to your point, I agree, there aren't a lot of, you know, solutions out there. You mentioned Nokia, that that's the private label um, that, that T-Mobile is deploying right now. But that should, that should grow and change over time. But I think it's a great start for T-Mobile. I would like to see some more, you know, um, you know, growth and you know, maturity in their enterprise portfolio. That should come in time. Again, you've got to crawl before you walk and run. But let's move to your first topic this week. And um, this is quite alarming. You and I both caught this earlier in the week, but there was a warning issued by the FCC around um, C-band and its potential interference with uh, the safety of, of, of aviation. And uh, there were some additional announcements this week from, from carriers, so I'll let you take it away. So the clarification is the FAA made this notice, mm -hmm. um, which is interesting because it kind of conflicts with what the FCC is doing on sure. spectrum availability. Um, so the notice came out two days ago um, and it was basically saying that there are issues with interference um, for the aviation industry pertaining to the deployment of C-band, mid-band spectrum in the 3.7 to four gigahertz band. Now the issue is that um, Verizon and AT&T are both slated to start rolling out their C-band spectrum December 5th. Mm -hmm. And um, the issue with that is uh, they can't roll out this spectrum now that the FAA has come out with this statement. Um, and they're starting to discuss now how they can mitigate this issue. Uh, but, but the fascinating um, discussion around this is both AT&T and Verizon's mid-band spectrum that they acquired to the tune of around $70 billion or $80 billion, uh, actually is in the lowest um, part of that C-band um, chunk of spectrum. So it's even less likely to interfere with the avionics equipment um, that planes are using for, for ground radar. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it's, it's a very fascinating discussion. I tried reading the report that the FAA based their findings on and the reason why they made this statement. Um, mm -hmm. It's a report from 2020, which means it's over a year old yeah. um, and that this wasn't addressed a year ago when it could have been, um, which means that either the FAA or the FCC are dragging their feet in solving this problem. Mm -hmm. um, and the, uh, the other issue is this spectrum is really crucial to Verizon and AT&T's 5G strategy long-term. And currently um, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that AT&T 
and Verizon have both delayed their spectrum rollout until January of next year from December of this year, which is only really a month delay. Um, and I think that's probably to, to give everybody a chance to realize what's going on and whether or not there are real concerns right now. Yeah. Um, but also to potentially give themselves more time to, to, to figure out their own thing. But I have a strong feeling that all the carriers are fairly aware of what the situation is. And, you know, we've seen the, the 5G Americas group uh, come out with a paper not a few months ago, kind of addressing this issue as well. Um, but I will say that it's, it's, you know, spectrum interference is a very complicated issue. Um, and it, it seems like from the 220 page document that I skimmed through, I, I tried to read it, but it, it's 220 pages, a lot to read. It seems like there are some valid points um, in terms of interference, but some of those points, you know, the interference is below thresholds and in some cases yeah. it's above. Um, yeah. But I think ultimately, it's, you know, having the spectrum in field, you know, doing some real testing, which honestly should have been before done well before the auction even occurred. Right. Um, right. So, I, you know, there's a lot of, um, I, I feel like there's some governmental uh, issues here. And it might be that there isn't actually any validity to any of this, um, because I don't think we've ever actually seen a single carrier come out and say, you know, forget it, we can't, we can't see what our altitude is because of this interference. So yeah. I think there's going to be a lot more learning that has to happen. Money needs to be spent on testing, um, but it needs to get done fast because there's tens of billions of dollars worth of assets at stake. And honestly, the, the readiness of our 5G infrastructure as a country and the economy is at stake, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. And boy, if I was Verizon reading that, you know, that report, I would have been freaking out, right? Because I mean, they're, they're the ones that spent the most you know, within the C-band auction. And this sounds to me like a, a lack of coordination between government agencies, which you know, isn't surprising. They tend to be quite siloed, so not to get political there, but uh, it is what it is. And uh, this is very late breaking news. You know, you, it kind of caught you and I off guard earlier this week. And I'm sure we're gonna see a lot of developments come out of this and uh, it'll be interesting um, you know, to report back on possibly a future podcast. But let's move to my second topic this week. And um, I'm going to uh, give some credit to Enterprise IoT Insights and Sean Kennedy, Sean Kenny, editor in chief, uh, with RCR Wireless. Uh, that is a sister uh, site of um, of RCR. And there was an article written about uh, Verizon's sort of view on the IoT opportunity. And the article was pennies to millions. And you know we, we do have Bill Curtis in our firm that's an IoT expert, so I'm not gonna go too deep there because that's really his purview, but really where I wanna focus sort of my insights on are around uh, the monetization claim there. And as I read through that article and you know, read through what this Verizon executive was stating, and I don't recall that person's name, so I apologize for that, but it really to me, the conclusion that, that I kind of gained from that article was, you know, Verizon feels like, um, you know, from a cost perspective and an operational life perspective of these sensors, the technology has gotten to a certain point where it can support monetization. And that really reminded me of the whole, you know, sort of dumb pipe 
um, attitude that, you know, honestly, all of the carriers, I think, on a global basis, uh, really, you know, we're, we're focused on within an LTE world. And, you know, the, the over-the-top application providers were able to sort of ride that investment in billion dollars of infrastructure and really monetize that. Now, I don't believe that's going to happen in a 5G world. The operators, they, they realize that, you know, we're seeing all of them globally incubating proof of concept labs, you know, funding startups and um, are really, you know, trying to find that next really, really compelling use case. But, you know, I was sort of left with, you know, show me the money um, because it's not just about, you know, operational life and cost. It's, it's about building an ecosystem, but would love to get your insights here, buddy. Yeah, I mean, I think that Verizon as a whole is pivoting towards business harder. They already are a very business-heavy company, even though if you look at their revenues, consumer is still bigger for them considerably. Um, I think Verizon is pivoting towards business applications, and that's why I think they're talking more about IoT as a, as a big opportunity. Sure. Um, I, I just think that they want to start offering more services and features that are business focused and that's all iot right iot for consumer there's it's very thin margin but when you have massive scale on on a business enterprise application for iot then it's an entirely different game and i think they realize that there's tons of opportunities to place sensors within an enterprise to uh, improve that enterprise's intelligence profitability and readiness Sure. Um, or a multitude of things. So I think it's a long, long discussion. Um, but I think Verizon sees it as an opportunity to grow their business, um, specifically on the business side. Yeah, I know, certainly. And, uh, you know, IoT is going to play a big role in, you know, factory automation with 5G private networks and that sort of thing. I mean, the, the, the predictive capabilities of determining if a machine is, you know, out of, you know, out of sync and, um, you know, getting, you know, to, re you know, replacing a part before it actually fails. And that's going to keep, you know, production lines up and, uh, you know, production very, very smooth. So, you know, absolutely. It's, it's a huge opportunity. I guess for me, it was like, where's the beat? You know, I didn't see a lot of the detail behind the modernization, but uh, it'll be interesting to kind of keep tabs on that and see how they develop that, uh, that program overall. But let's move to your second topic this week. And it's no surprise that T-Mobile has been the first to 5G standalone. And you wanna talk about um, something related to that. Yeah, so this is kind of a development along that path, but it's actually, I would say more uh, an evol evolution of both its ability to do carrier aggregation as well as uh, its ability to do standalone. So um, T-Mobile announced that they were able to achieve uh, download speeds of almost five gigabits per second, uh, 4.950 gigabits, um, which means that I believe that's the fastest we've seen to date uh, on a commercial network. And mm -hmm. this is a combination of their 2.5 gigahertz band 41 and their millimeter wave band N260. Um, and what that's what's interesting about that is it's a combination of mid-band and high-band. We've seen a lot of low-band and mid-band and low-band and high-band. We haven't seen much mid-band and high-band, which is interesting because those are both very rich in spectrum and mm -hmm. in throughput and in capacity. Um, yeah. So having those two combined 
um, shows how powerful T-Mobile's network truly can be in places where they deploy both millimeter wave and mid-band. Um, and this bodes well for companies like Verizon as well, because Verizon has a very big millimeter wave footprint and they're, going, they're spending considerable amounts of money on C-band to ensure that they have a good millimeter, a good mid-band uh, deployment as well in terms of coverage. So, you know, mm -hmm. this bodes well for T-Mobile uh, as well as Verizon and possibly even AT&T users. Um, but it, it's funny because T-Mobile made this announcement and they kind of gave us an idea of how fast this can really be. But it's funny because in my mind, I think this is almost more interesting for a Verizon just because of how much millimeter wave they've gotten already deployed and plan to deploy. Yeah. yeah, you know, absolutely. When you look at sort of T-Mobile's priority, it's been low band, right? Because they want to provide ubiquitous coverage and then followed by mid-band. Um, they have some millimeter wave assets, but when you look at AT&T and Verizon on the other hand, certainly Verizon, their priority has been building out their millimeter wave, right? Uh, their ultra wideband service. So this is interesting and certainly the, the blend of uh, both mid-band and, and high-band, it should be able to unlock a lot of very really compelling use cases that take advantage of the low latency, the propagation, and the throughput. So um, it's very interesting. But let's move to my third and final topic this week. And the space race continues to heat up. So the FCC approved Boeing's ability to launch low Earth orbit satellites uh, to deliver broadband communication services. And so we've talked about, um, you know, we've talked about, you know, multiple, um, you know, companies that have been doing this, um, you know, space, the division of SpaceX that's been doing this. Um, when you look at what um, the traditional satellite providers like in Hughes and their investment in OneWeb and that sort of thing. So, you know, my question is, is it too much? I don't know. From my perspective, competition breeds innovation. It should also breed cost competitiveness. But I found it interesting that, you know, Boeing's been at this since 2017. So it's, and they were, they were requesting waivers and that sort of thing. So I don't know, you know, what changed if maybe this, this infrastructure bill that's trying to get through Congress had anything to do with that. But, but I believe one of the positive aspects is that there's been clearly identified issues around the need to bridge the digital divide and satellite can be a part of that, but would love to get your insights there as well. Yeah, I, I think the issue with satellite being used to fill the gap in rural areas is none of the satellite providers have shown that they can actually provide coverage to millions of users. Mm -hmm. um, and there are millions of users who are disadvantaged uh, in rural areas. So, you know, they can, if they can all serve a couple hundred thousand, that doesn't really solve the issue. Um, because ultimately the density of their network um, and the throughput of their, their, their satellite constellation is what can determine how many users they can serve simultaneously. So mm -hmm. the issue is density and, and cost. Um, but I, I'm, I remain optimistic, but also cautious because I know that like, you know, space is space is technically unlimited, but not space around Earth. Right. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, there's going to be limitations and physical ones. And I, I am worried about what that might mean in the future. 
Um, but I also hope that the competition, you know, feeds more innovation and rapid improvements in terms of how many users can be served by this. And to your point, you know, satellite can be used to improve um, 5G coverage for users um, and just delivering internet service to people in places where, you know, they don't have any choices. You know, I have a friend who doesn't have any choice other than cellular and just got kicked off of his cellular provider because, you know, he was using too much data and he's like, I don't have any other choice. Right. Yeah, it's a challenge. And, you know, talk about contention. We were talking about, you know, the FAA earlier and FCC and, you know, what's going on with C-band, you know, with this low orbit, you know, satellite uh, network, you know, we're talking, you know, hundreds of uh, satellites per company. And so I'm, I'm a little more concerned about those satellites, you know, all the satellites floating around than anything else, but it'll be interesting to see. But let's move to your third and final topic this week. You want to talk about Qualcomm and they had another blockbuster earnings announcement, correct? Yeah, so uh, Qualcomm announced earnings yesterday. Um, and, and basically they, they were better than everybody expected. Um, they said that their, um, their chip business alone generated $7.7 .7 billion in revenue, up 56% wow. year on year. Um, and they were, their stock went up like 13%. Um, but the, the big deal was the fact that um, the company says that it, it expects the, um, the chip shortage to be in the rear view by the end of the year um, wow. that, that Qualcomm had put in place uh, supply earlier in this year to ensure that it would have enough capacity uh, if demand were to continue to grow. And as a result, um, you know, Cristiano Amon, the CEO said supply worked exactly as they had planned um, and that scale helps and that they addressed the issue early by putting capacity plans in place and it's working exactly as they had planned. Um, and they said that um, the reality is if we look where we are today, we have a great quarter four, but we're still short, meaning that uh, supply is still uh, keeping up with, trying to catch up with demand, but um, they're gonna see, see supply substantially improve at the end of the calendar year, as well as when they get into financial, into, into 2022, mm -hmm. um, but there is still more demand than supply. So, you know, the company basically bet on 5G um, and smartphones, which is a primary its primary business, um, and it's seeing those bets pay off. Um, you know, it's also diversified into RFFE and automotive. Um, and yeah, if you just like look at what what they were able to accomplish, a lot of this really comes down to the fact that Qualcomm, for the longest time, has had a um, a multi-fab model. So mm -hmm. whenever somebody goes out and asks Qualcomm, so this is a you know five nanometer chip, which fab are you using? They rarely actually answer that question because it's usually a multi-fab solution. Mm -hmm. um, so from my recollection, uh, you know they have uh, agreements in place today with Global Foundries, TSMC, and Samsung, and they signed a deal with Intel uh, earlier this year to also expand their supply capabilities. And 
I think if you look at what they've accomplished this quarter and what they probably are going to do for the next few quarters, um, they're going to be able to maintain uh, whatever supply their customers ask for. And they might even gain some customers that mm-hmm. might, might have to come to them because they don't have a choice. Um, we saw this happen with Intel when they had some supply issues. AMD picked up customers purely because they had supply and Intel didn't. So um, it's not like Qualcomm is necessarily a small player in the space, um, but it is very interesting to see that they are very confident in their ability to supply. Um, and they're probably going, to, it sounds like they're probably going to be the, the first ones to really come out of this chip shortage uh, ahead in terms of being able to take advantage of their early planning uh, and anticipating uh, the chip shortage before it got really bad. Yeah, it's amazing. Continuity of supply and managing that correctly can either make or break you. You, you mentioned Intel with some uh, initial, I think they had some fab you know, issues, you know, bringing up whatever that, that nanometer process was. As a product marketer at Dell many years ago, launching products, if we didn't get our procurement house straight, uh, we could face the same thing as well. So certainly it's one thing to be a technology powerhouse and have the IP and have the marketing strength of a Qualcomm, but they have a commensurate uh, procurement organization uh, that has ensured that continuity of supply. And it sounds like they were planning for this well before there were any sort of indications that we were gonna experience what we've been experiencing. So kudos to them. But hey, Betty, another great podcast. Why don't you take us home? Absolutely. We hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. If anyone out there would like to provide us insight on a specific 5G topic for a future podcast, please reach out to us on social media. Will is at Will Town Tech and I'm at Anshal Sag. We hope you have a great weekend and please tune in again next week.